Hey folks, uh, we're back here on The Peaceful Way with another dialogue episode. I am here with um, Sal Mayweather, is that correct? Yes. Okay, Sal, also known as uh, Sal the Agorist on Twitter. Um, so Sal is um, an agorist, okay? Uh, and my first question is, Sal, don't, why don't you think that if we just vote harder, we'll get things to change? Well, number one, um, it's, first of all, whether or not it works is irrelevant because it, it's immoral, mm. right? No one has the, the right to impose a master on, on their neighbors. Uh, it doesn't matter how benevolent that, that person may be or how benevolent one may think that person is. It's irrelevant. Um, now, if we put the moral issues, moral issues to the side, it doesn't work, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a failed uh, experiment, you know, uh, Gary Johnson ran in 2016 against uh, Donald Trump and <clears throat> Hillary Clinton, a reality television star and a woman who should have been in prison, and he got 3% of the vote. So, you know, it, it's, it's a rigged game. And uh, frankly, it's frustrating that people don't see how rigged it is, right? Like, yeah. like I said, a reality television star and a woman who should have been in prison, the best he could do is 3%. So, and, you know, that's just one of many examples. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a partly facetious question, but I totally get your points that there. Uh, uh, it, it is, uh, there's only, in my mind, there's only uh, so much the political process can do. And now me, myself, I'm, um, I don't know if I'm uh, fully on the agorist uh, bandwagon, but I am, say, agorist curious, okay? I, I'm, I've sort of, I only have like a surface level understanding of the philosophy. I think I kind of get the gist of it. Uh, but why don't you just explain to me and to everyone listening, uh, what is agorism? And yeah, just what is agorism? Well, I mean, usually people will define it as um, economics, <clears throat> but an easier way to understand what agorism is or what the agora is, is just to think about it like the absence of politics. Imagine a world where there were no politicians, no political institutions, only economics, only free market economics at play, that's the agora. And agorism is the process of getting there, which, uh, which involves counter-economics, the use, the use of the black and gray markets, the voluntary markets, the peaceful markets to subvert or undermine the violent uh, pink and red markets that the state uh, operates in. Okay. Um, so what would be... Like, what would be an example of a uh, black or gray market? So a black market is anything that's consistent with the non-aggression principle, which means that there is no property crimes involved. And uh, it's, it's also prohibited by the state. So that's like things would be like selling weed would be a black market crime, right? Yeah. Uh, a gray market crime, a gray market refers to uh, market activity that's consistent with the non-aggression principle, but... Um, the state regulates it. It's not outright banned, but it is regulated. So um, things like uh, smuggling cigarettes would be a gray market activity. Okay. Because, you know, cigarettes aren't banned, but they are heavy, heavily regulated. If, so all smuggling essentially would be a gray market activity. Um, growing food and selling it at the black market uh, under the right. table, that's a gray market activity, you know? Yeah. Yeah, if you don't, if we don't have our sort of state overlords giving us uh, permission to, right? Yeah, <laughs> trade food, do. you know. Yeah, and they do. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I that's one of the best examples I give people is to like who want to get involved. Is I say start a garden, right? Right, because you're you're it's even this is just a few dollars. You're, you're you're denying the state a little bit of revenue that they would have otherwise used to oppress people. Right, right. Okay, that's interesting. Um, now, me, I. I'm, I don't know that I'm fully convinced that uh, we should completely exit out of the political process yet. I, I can be convinced. I'm open to it. Um, but it does seem to me there's definitely like huge diminishing returns in engaging in the political process. Uh, there's only so much that can actually be done. And it seems there's a more effective uh, ways to reduce violence and create a more peaceful world uh, that involves just sort of um, uh, becoming an almost anti-political actor in a market or in a society. 
in, in the sense that you you do things that are permissionless, you know. And I'm thinking of something like uh, um, like what you just said is a great great example. It, uh, growing your own food is permissionless, uh, but even things like um, um, from what I understand, a, um, ag- agorist is that how you pronounce it? Agorism. Potato, potato. Okay. Yeah, uh, the the uh, agorists are really into things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Uh, is that something you would also advocate for? Absolutely. Yeah, I have my Bitcoin cash shirt on right okay. now. <laughs> there, there um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the when I when I look at the government, which is the enemy, they're the ones who are committing all this violence, then I think to myself, <clears throat> well, how have they structured their power over us? And uh it always goes back to the money, right? It's it's true what they say. It's such a cliche, but if you just follow the money, you right. get back to the source of the problem, right? And all, of the, all roads lead back to the central bank. It's, it's yeah. the ability to counterfeit money that enables them to carry on these endless wars and uh, enable the police state and the military industrial complex and the welfare state. That all comes about through the inflationary powers. So as agorists, we want to target the central bank. That's our enemy. And uh, the way to do this, see, the bank is, it's, it's, a, it's a cartel. It's a cartel of private banks, and that is what the Federal Reserve is. I know it sounds conspiratorial, but if, if you, the, your listeners look it up, they'll see that I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic at all. It actually is a cartel of banks. Right. The way to beat a cartel is to offer a superior product at a lower price. So cryptocurrencies are non-inflationary, and uh, <clears throat> they don't require the use of third-party intermediaries. So if you and I were going to do an exchange or any two people who are not face-to-face want to, want to do an exchange, you need a third party, a visa, a bank. Some third party has to verify that one of us has, has sent those funds and also that the other has received them. So now with Bitcoin, we don't need that. We have a network of, in, of individuals, of miners, uh, verifying these transactions that cuts out the government and the banks out of this process, which means that people can now transact without the fear of uh, third-party censorship. And that is, um, you know, you look at a good example of this would be like the Silk Road with Ross Ulbricht. Yeah. Uh, He was able to enable uh, this massive amount of uh, peaceful trade, right? It was all consistent with the non-aggression principle. And uh, they were so threatened. The state was so threatened. All he did was make a website. Yeah. where people would list items and buy them and stuff like that. And there were all sorts of black and gray market stuff on this website. But they were, that wasn't what scared them, right? It wasn't the drugs or anything like that. They made up lies about them at court. And uh, you know, it was the idea that, that someone, could, someone didn't need them, that we could transact economically. We could be free of them financially because that is uh, the death knell for them. And that's why I'm so uh, bullish on cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, I- and what do you what do you think uh what would you say to the like the charge against cryptocurrency and against websites like the silk road that you know people just use it to uh to buy drugs and weapons and and human trafficking and there's all sorts of interesting uh accusations i hear about it none of which i've ever heard to be verified but i'm just saying this is something i often hear about the use of cryptocurrency and it's unregulated. So there's all these dangerous activities we might be able to engage in. Well, what's ironic about all that is that, you know, if you go back to the Silk Road, uh, people were selling drugs, but what would happen is um, you would have a seller who, let's say we're selling heroin, right? Well, now if some Joe Schmo wants to come and buy heroin from us, he can click on our listing and he could see how many reviews we have. And we have five stars. No okay. one's ever overdosed on our heroin. Hmm. So he, Ross actually made the process much more safer. Right. Uh, the whole, he was, t- see what makes drugs is so, so dangerous is that it's in the black market. So there's no, the, the market can't develop the surrounding infrastructure to like, uh, to, to like care for that individual. Like in Vancouver, they've uh, legalized to some extent um, drugs. And now there's clinics where doctors can take care of you and nurses and they'll test your needle and they'll test your heroin to make sure it's not poison. So the market will provide for these things if we allow it, but the state uh, prevents us from doing that. So look, there's always going to be people transacting. Uh, <clears throat> you know, and that's the other thing too, is they say, 
well, people buy drugs and guns with Bitcoin for that exact reason, right? Well, no, no currency has ever seen more legal transactions than the U.S. dollar. Right. So, so what's, what's a dirtier money, you know? Well, yeah. And my, my question to that is always like, how many bombs have been dropped uh, yeah. using the U.S. dollar, right? To, right. <laughs> to fund. And, and, uh, and how many have been dropped using Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Compare the numbers, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it doesn't even seem like a fair comparison. Right. But yeah. Um, so do you see like... Um, do you see any like modern day examples of sort of this counter economics concept uh, starving the state of its power in any significant way or even in a small microcosm? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, first of all, look at what 3D printers have done, right? We've ended the gun control debate, essentially. Right. Uh, but that's only one example. <clears throat> Another would be... Um, we're starting to see something I'm really excited about is this whole coming wave of tokenized securities and assets. I think a lot of libertarians are sleeping on this. A lot of people in general, the whole world, frankly, is sleeping on this. Um, you can create a digital representation of ownership, which exists on a blockchain ledger, much like a Bitcoin. But rather than Bitcoin, you could be trading uh, shares, <clears throat> ownership shares of a company. So, that is going to really decrease the role that FINRA and the SEC play in our lives, right? Because now FINRA is essentially a cartel of brokers. And if you want to buy a security, you have to go through one of their brokers. So because it's a cartel, what they're, what they're doing is they're restricting the supply of brokerage, which is driving up the cost, and it's making it more difficult for firms to access capital. Right. Well, once we tokenize, <laughs> once we make it possible for firms, it is possible today, to tokenize their entire business and then list those businesses on decentralized exchanges, well, all of a sudden, the SEC and FINRA can't do a damn thing about it. They're in the same right. position that the ATF is in with 3D printing or the Federal Reserve is in with Bitcoin, right? They're, we've essentially castrated the beast. Right. So, uh, you know, the other thing too is I think that there's a, an enormous financial opportunity, right? So we use Austrian economics to learn about Bitcoin and we made a bunch of money. Uh, some people made more than others. I didn't make as much as I would like to, but some people got filthy rich off the wave of Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, we're going to see the same thing happen with tokenization. Um, you know, if you, people who are early on this are going to really make, make, make a, a significant penny, I think, because. Uh, so, and so that would essentially, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but that would essentially be just like, Instead of me buying, um, you know, like a federally regulated share between the, the trading hours on the, say, NASDAQ or here, I'm in Canada, so the TSX is, is where we buy our shares. Um, it, it, it would just be anyone can sort of buy a token as a share of that company, so to speak. Exactly. Is, that a, is that the correct <laughs> understanding? Yeah, no, exactly. That's, that's precisely it. Um, but it doesn't have to be just... Uh, just just like a, a securitized firm, it could be an asset, right? It yeah. could be your car. It could be you and I and three friends could all chip in, buy a car together, tokenize the car, and then trade those tokens around. And, uh, you know, let's say we rent out the, the car and then we have a dividend for all token holders to receive payments every month, every two months, whatever it is. So the really, it's really going to revolutionize um, the way property rights are enforced. And I think it's, it's going to be a disaster for the state, frankly. I mean, yeah. imagine, imagine what a huge wave of capital that's going to unleash on firms. And that's just right. going to be like a snowball effect. You know what I mean? Well, I can only imagine the, uh, the sort of um, gatekeepers and uh, heavy-handed uh, regulations and bureaucracies that we're all are making incredibly inefficient markets. And it, it makes us all poor, really, though, exactly. all, those, all those things. It makes, us, it makes uh, the use of our time and our, and our resources far more inefficient. And, and then that takes you know, more time and then we're, we all become poorer. Uh, so that, that totally makes sense to me. Uh, and that's a very uh, compelling idea. You know, the other thing, too, is that you know, let's say you and I have competing businesses. Well, if you tokenize your business, you're tapping into this... Um, previously inaccessible pool of liquidity. Right. So now I have an incentivization. I'm incentivized now where, oh, geez, all my competitors 
are taking advantage of this increased liquidity, man, I really should do the same if I want to keep my business afloat. So it's going to sort of have, uh, you know, it's almost like a dog chasing its tail. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Uh, do you, are you kind of, um, what's, what's your like take on like, here's my premise it is Andy, this is a conversation that I have like with a lot of, uh, peace advocates and, and nonviolent people, uh, and not just kind of in the libertarian sphere, but outside of it, uh, a lot of them do not want to sort of accept the the general premise. Um, maybe they do, but they don't really, there's sort of a lot of cognitive dissonance, but the premise that uh, any state that is currently in existence is based on force and the threat of violence uh, to whoever doesn't comply with said state. Uh, and whether you think that's like a, a necessary evil or not um, is a separate question, but a lot of people don't really want to be honest about that question. Um, and if we can at least agree on the premise that the, the state is based on a, a systemic violence, let's call it, um, uh, and, the, and the threat of you know, locking people in cages for uh, nonviolent crimes and nonviolent actions, um, how do you, like, in, agor- in agorism, is it, is it like a revolutionary thing? Like, are, do agorists think that the best way forward is to take up arms against the state or is it more just undermining and subverting the state? Yeah, we, we completely reject the idea of initiatory violence at all, at all um, anywhere it pops its head, head up. Agorism is the opposite of initiatory violence. The whole philosophy right. is based on, um, like I said, you know, the agora is the, when we, earlier we were discussing what it is, it's the absence of politics. So it's the absence of violence. Yeah. You know, going back to like what you were saying about how the state <clears throat> is inseparable from violence. That's how Rothbard, um, Murray Rothbard, a great economist, defined the state as the entity which exercises a, a monopoly on violence over a given territory. Right. So it's, 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 it's logically, it's inclusive in the definition is the, the initiation of violence. And that's the problem with the state, right? Yeah. They, if, if, it was, if any of their ideas were so good, then it, would, it wouldn't be a state. It, they right. wouldn't have to, it, right? It, it would be, these, these ideas would be voluntarily adopted by individuals rather than having a gun stuck in our face and forcing us to, to uh, obey. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, it, is, uh, it seems to me that that's like the... But like... You, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Um, <clears throat> you know... <sighs> A great example of this, right? So, like, look at what Gandhi did, right, yeah. with Satyagraha, as, as he used to call it, and, and the salt march to the sea, right? The, the British were taxing, taxing the, the salt, and, uh, you know, that was the key to their rule over the, over the Indian people. So Gandhi just used peaceful economics, right? He just showed everybody, look, we can get salt right out of the ocean. We don't, we don't need to pay their tax. Right, and the British right. Empire withered away. He was able to take down one of the most violent entities in human history without ever raising a fist. Right, right. And that's, that's agorism. That's counter-economics. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, um, that's uh, a lot more uh, malleable with sort of my view on things is I want to reduce violence, not, not increase it. And even, even if we might be justified in, in taking up arms against uh, the state, is it, is it, is it the uh, best way to go about, you know, because just from my own reading of history, it seems that um, violent revolutions always just replace despots with more despots, you know, and, and it's hard to get away from that, if that and, makes and, sense. Absolutely. And, you know, just a, a quick trip through history, uh, you know, the, the French went through this with Robespierre, the English had Cromwell, we had Washington, uh, whoever, whoever chops the tyrant's head off, is the one who becomes the next tyrant. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, moreover, I can't think of one violent revolution that didn't cause an innocent individual to lose their life. Right. Yeah. There's never... So, you know, we hear like a lot of this talk about on the internet about the boogaloo, right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> They're going to, uh, you know, frankly, it's just these kids LARPing, right? Yeah. <laughs> but 
they're never going to do anything, thank God. Yeah. I hope they don't because, yeah. you know, they're going to walk into the state capitol and shoot the place up. Do you think that they're only going to get the most evil politicians? No, there's going to be clerks and interns and people just walking through right, right, who are going to yeah. be their victims. Yeah, yeah. And that makes them just as disgusting as politicians. Yeah, totally. You know. What, what's your take on like, uh, I think it was... Uh, what's I'm trying to think of the state. Is it the Michigan State House or something where there's there's people uh, gathering on uh, on the legislature and they're 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 coming armed and obviously very menacing and intimidating. I and I'm I'm sort of like caught between like while they're responding to a violent state that is aggressing against them, and uh, it, yet at the same time it seems that method of like just raising the tensions by doing those sort of theatrics uh is it the best way to go about what's your opinion on that? i I, <clears throat> I tend to think you're right on both accounts so um on the one hand uh <clears throat> the michigan governor whitmer who i've been calling whitler because she acts more like hitler than in, in <laughs> any other governor um she is no doubt initiating violence upon peaceful people there's no way around that um so I think as long as people don't use violence, I don't care if you protest with your, your rifle on your back, that's no problem as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But if we look at what's a more effective tactic, right? You can go march around the Capitol building with your rifles all day long, yeah. but at the end of the day, Michigan's still on lockdown, right? You still are going to go to jail if you cut hair. So they didn't accomplish anything. Yeah. yeah. Now, if they had used counter-economics um, instead of you know protesting, and all of the barbers said, oh, you know what, screw it. We're going to, you're going to cut yeah. here anyway. Yeah, yeah. They can't arrest every barber in the state of Michigan. So that right. would have been a much more effective tactic. That's all, that's also uh, a little bit more consistent, I guess, with the non-aggression principle. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It is, uh, it, it is one of those things where I'm, I'm kind of like unsure. I'm not sure it's the best um, use of time, but it, I do get it. Um, but it's protesting in general to me is kind of silly. Okay. Go elaborate on that. Well, I mean, you know, we saw uh, in Virginia, <clears throat> excuse me, we saw in Virginia when uh, Ralph Northam was doing, I forget what it was, background checks or so he was doing something with guns. Yeah. The people went nuts, right? There was like right, 10,000 right. people showed up at the state house and they marched around like all day long with, you know, 50 cows and everything. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the next day they went home and the Virginia state legislature passed all those bills anyway. Oh man. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's like, it made no you know, difference, really. it makes no difference. And you yeah. guys, you know, look, yeah, you're, you're on the news for the day and you yeah. know, it makes you look cool on, on TV and stuff, but you look, it's, we're not about looking cool. This is about actually achieving results. Right. And right. the way to, the only way that we've ever been able to do this is with counter economics. So, yeah. you know, they were, they, and we calculated it. Uh, I forget what it was, but, the amount of time they were protesting, I could have printed out like three FGC nines. Like they were there for like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, we can ask Governor Northam, who's a tyrant for permission to have rights, yeah. or we can just exercise them like the free men that we already are. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this conversation with Sal Mayweather. I just want to remind you, I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search The Peaceful Way on any of those platforms. Also, if you want to support the show, don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to subscribe. You can also financially support on www.patreon.com forward slash The Peaceful Way. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of this conversation. So I'm in Canada, so it's uh, and people are tend to be a lot more um, compliant uh, than than they are in the state. It's just it's like a cultural thing, you know. We never had like a revolutionary war <laughs> against the British. We're technically still part of the British Empire, right. so yeah. it, it's uh, it's there's sort of this uh, uh, ver there's this very compliant attitude, and it's hard to get like I get the idea if if a bunch of us just didn't comply, 
there would be uh, there'd be nothing the state could do like they couldn't it would be too big for them to enforce they might give lip service to such and such a rule but at the end of the day uh there's nothing they could do but in canada there's there are some people who are uh exercising civil disobedience but it's such a small amount and it it's easy for the state to turn them into scapegoats and basically say especially with uh you know at time of recording this uh we're still sort of under some soft lockdown measures in canada for the covid19 pandemic and uh there's there's um there's there is a few people who are like resisting and putting up some resistance but the state just ends up making examples out of them and the culture doesn't really support them at all so what do you what is it do you think there's any methods or or tactics we can take to engage in civil disobedience that that doesn't put ourselves in like significant harm's way well <clears throat> you know the thing about counter economics is that there's always a, a some degree of risk involved because yeah. we're dealing with black and gray markets um but you know look at look at like marijuana in the states right it went from <clears throat> it went from being illegal to everybody was doing it so much and so often and so out in the open that it was unenforceable. Right. It was just, it was just, they, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. So the only, they couldn't prohibit it anymore. So the only out that they had was to try to make it look like they were being benevolent and saying, okay, we've changed our minds. Mm. You guys can, you guys can smoke pot now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't what it was about. Right. They didn't have a choice. It was unenforceable. There was a video I don't know if it was in California, New Jersey, of uh, a couple people, some girl had run to the beach and the cops, two cops went running after her and all the public watching was so upset by it by that they all ran to the beach too. <laughs> and now there's like 500 people on the beach and the cops just have to let her go because there's nothing they could do about it. Right, okay. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of over... So, so that would be like an example of agorism. It's not... It doesn't, you don't even necessarily have to be thinking that's what you're doing. Like you're, you're just engaging in it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, there's also different, different levels of agorism, I would say like, you know, any way you can deny the state a dollar is, is agorism yeah. and jumping on the beach to, to, to help that girl is agorism. And then there's more like nuanced uh, tactics that we use. Um, okay. So like, uh, you know, I don't know how deep we want to go, but like there's a horizontal and a vertical strategy to agorism where... Um, okay, explain that. I want to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, uh, one, you have the local production. It's a, it's a, two, it's a, it's a two-headed snake here. You have the uh, local production facility and then you have um, the other end of it would be uh, just peaceful voluntary exchange, right? So um, Per Byland, an economist at Oklahoma State, has a great article where he expounded on this theory. He's a great agorist. And he said, um, you know, the true strength of counter economics comes from a union of the, the two strategies. So for example, we'll take like the 3d printer, that's your local production facility. And then the true power, the true way you nullify the gun laws, the ATF and all the different federal gun laws is through uh, voluntary exchange of those guns. Right. And the same thing with, your blockchain miner is your local production facility or you're creating a currency and then you distribute that Bitcoin, you trade it around to, you know, your friends and, and merchants and clients and stuff like that. That would be the, uh, you know, just the, the, the trading aspect, the voluntary trading aspect of it. And when we, when we unite those two strategies is when we have the most, uh, the greatest effect. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, interesting. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about, um, sort of what your view is on uh i don't know how to word it but like technology because there there's i'm a very like i'm very optimistic about technology personally uh, and like you're mentioning things like um like uh, 3d printing and bitcoin and 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 these these sort of technologies i uh, i even you even go further things like um uh uh, mass farming and agriculture have been able to provide a countless amount of food for a countless amount of people, right? And 
And, and I'm generally hopeful about technology, even though it can definitely be used in a bad way. It, it is, uh, I do think at the end of the day, technology does more to liberate us than it does to harm us. Uh, but there is a lot I see on both the left and the right sides of the political spectrum of this like skepticism of technology, that technology is something to be feared. And it certainly gets used in, in bad ways. And there's a lot of like, um, you know, hate on, you know, social media companies. And uh, uh, there's a lot of fear about things like uh, 5G, you know, stuff like that. And it, it's uh, people get really caught up in the weeds, not really, to me, not really looking at the bigger picture that technology is a net good for us, even and it helps it helps to actually create a more peaceful society when we learn how to leverage the technology in such a way. Uh, what's like? What's your view on you know technological advancement in that sense? I, I agree with you 100. I'm very optimistic. I think that <clears throat> technology is really just like it's it's part of this whole trend towards decentralization that we see the empowerment of the individual right yeah. that's what a 3d printer is just we have a whole manufacturing plant in your in your basement right um yeah blockchain miner you have a whole bank in your house so it's all about empowering the individual and decentralizing towards that point now there's like there is a lot of hate on um tech companies and i understand a lot of that but I think that it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, <clears throat> so I'd rather, I'd rather Facebook spy on us than the NSA because I have a choice whether or not I can use Facebook. I don't have a choice if the yeah. NSA is going to spy on me. Totally. And I, think, I, I think it's only one step, too. I think once we start to tokenize um, a lot of the online content, then and we already see it happening, right, with sites like Minds where... Uh, you know, if you post on Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, own, own, he owns your content. Yeah. But if you post on Minds, you own your content. You get paid Minds tokens based on how many views your post gets. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that's a trend we're going to see more and more of. So we're moving from the state was spying on us and they controlled our, our data to a little bit more of a decentralized process where rather than one monolithic state controlling our data, we have you know, a dozen or two dozen tech companies controlling our data. Right, that's right. done in a voluntary way. And the next step is going to be where we control our data. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, th do you think that it's like, it's more just, I, 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 I do agree to an extent that, you know, like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, Google, they are doing probably unethical things that uh, are, are sort of insidious in some ways and they're and they're partnering with the state in a lot of uh instances as well however uh do you think that it's maybe just a matter of time before we're able to innovate our way out of those paradigms yeah yeah no exactly that that that's what i that's one of the hopes of tokenization and you know i just wrote yeah, um yeah. I just had two articles on the new libertarian um about okay. this one was called digital feudalism and the other was called um, AI in the Agora. Okay. And, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a certain sense, we really are like uh, digital serfs and working on these tech CEOs. Every post on Twitter makes money for Jack. Every post on Facebook makes money for Zuckerberg. Uh, we're doing the work, but we're not getting paid. So yeah. we really are like feudal search in that sense. But I think that's going to change with technos. Um, and also I think like, you know, um, if we compare like the way that sort of like what China does with their citizens' data, right? Everything goes through WeChat. There's one super app yeah, yeah. where data is collected. And then that data is going to be used to... Um, for artificial intelligence purposes. And now it's being used. Now they have access to this huge pool of data because that's really what all AI requires, right? It's just more, the more data you feed into AI, the more accurate it becomes. So China doesn't give their citizens a choice. They just collect everyone's data. Right. So now when they have the Hong Kong protests, they're able to use that information to identify who the, who the troublemakers are, right? Or yeah. um, 
Another example would be like facial recognition technology. We see how they've been using that. Mm-hmm. But it's important to remember that if the state can use that tech, well, so can we. Right. Right. So um, now there's companies popping up who uh, design makeup and hairstyles. They're, okay. they're designed to, in different, you know, mask companies as well, they're designed to throw off these facial recognition sensors. So I'm, I'm extremely op- optimistic with technology. You know, also we hear like the economic argument, like we're all going to lose our jobs, but that's nonsense because, yeah. you know, Rothbard wrote, <clears throat> Rothbard wrote a lot about this, how like there's really nothing to be concerned about because whenever we lose those old legacy jobs, they get replaced with newer, higher paying jobs in, uh, you know, higher tech sectors of the economy. Right. right. Yeah. And it, I, whenever someone brings up that uh, sort of uh, concept, it's, um, I always just remind them like we always, everyone thought that the horse and buggy going away was going to, you know, eliminate so many exactly. jobs, but really just new jobs um, were created through that, you know? Right. I mean, we can think about how many more jobs we can get back if we, you know, go back to the days before the printing press. We all, we hired the calligraphers back. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I and mean, we can get all those calligraphers can get their jobs back, but we can't use computers, you yeah. know? Well, I think uh, uh, there's a quote from Milton Friedman where he says, like, if, if, it's, if jobs is all you're concerned about, then just hire people to dig holes and fill them back up again, right? So, <laughs> And it's like right out of Keynes' playbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, uh, that, that's, uh, that's uh, some pretty interesting um, concepts there. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to, uh, you mentioned um, Ross Albrecht, and uh, I'm just cu- kind of curious. I actually haven't done the reading or the research on it that I should, uh, but I do understand that he was uh, arrested uh, for, and he's currently incarcerated um, for violating a bunch of, I don't know what laws, but uh can you just explain what that story is and what the uh, uh, reasoning behind the state and, and why they... Yeah, yeah. Um, Ross created the, the Silk Road, which was an online marketplace. It was a website where people could buy and sell things. And uh, it was like eBay, but rather than using fiat currency, use uh, Bitcoin at the time. This is back when... The, the fees in the Bitcoin network were smaller such that you could, it was much more easier to facilitate trade. Right now the fees are a little bit higher, so it's much more difficult to do this with Bitcoin, but yeah, um, people will buy and sell whatever they want. It was all done on tour too, by the way. So everything was encrypted. So you could buy and sell anything, um, yeah. drugs, guns, you name it. Yeah. And Ross had a few rules that, you know, he was an agorist like me. So um, he abided by the non-aggression principle. Okay. Um, And by the way, if your listeners are interested, all this was based on um, a book that became a movie called Alongside Night by J. Neil Shulman, another agorist. Hmm. Um, Ross read Alongside Night and that's when he decided to build the Silk Road. So eventually people were buying and selling stuff and uh, the feds found him in a library where he was working. He had signed onto the Silk Road and I guess the way it had worked was if he had closed his laptop, they wouldn't be able to get him. So they made it seem like they were just looking at books and they were whatever and then they (laughs) sort of just all jumped on at the same time and held his computer open. Well, um, the trial was was held in a kangaroo court by um, a warlord come judge named Catherine B. Forrest, who I, the word to apply the word judge to this woman is frankly an insult <laughs> to any of the good judges if there are any left. But she decided to give Ross a first time nonviolent offender, double life plus 40. Now, there are Nazis wow. at Nuremberg <laughs> who got less time than that. El Chapo oh <laughs> got yeah. less time than that. Slobodan Milosevic got less time than that. African dictators at the Hague have received half of that sentence, less than half of that sentence. So, you know, it's not about 
selling drugs or guns or something like they don't the truth is the state doesn't give a, give a crap about stuff like that yeah they care about people who are threatening their monopoly and that's right. what ross did right because if all of a sudden we didn't need them right if all of a sudden we could buy and sell stuff uh without them that's th- that all of a sudden the demand for the u.s dollar would drop out of the bottom yeah because you know that's the other important aspect of this is that Ross gave Bitcoin utility, right? Right before Bitcoin, before the Silk Road, it was just it was a sort of novelty thing that I could send you, and we could play around with. It was kind of cool to send back and forth to one another, but now with the Silk Road, we saw this is what Bitcoin can do. Wow, look at look at this now. You know, if I tried to buy heroin off of a website with Visa, Visa is going to flag the transaction, probably alert the DEA, and I'm going to get my door kicked down in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. Now with Bitcoin, they can't do that. And that's what makes the Silk Road so powerful. That's what makes Ross probably the most effective agorist ever, if not, right. you know, at least top three. I, and like, is it, are they only selling on something like the Silk Road? Was it only the transactions? Were they only like more illicit things or was there just more benign uh, transactions going on as well. There was everything. There yeah. was everything, benign and, and malicious transactions. I mean, there were people selling medicine on the okay. Silk Road Yeah, um, that the FDA hadn't approved that people needed. Right. So, right. I mean, th- these are heroic actions that, that they're yeah. doing, you know? And like I, you know, we were talking about earlier, is to, he, he was also taking the danger out of the drug market, right? Yeah. By, yeah. By helping people, you know, establish a reputation in this sort of anonymous way. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it is a very like it's like a harm reduction model because right. because you uh, 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 vendors end up uh, building reputations and stuff, and then they have to they are incentivized to protect their reputation, right? So uh, it, it's sort of this the idea of self regulation, um, you know. Exactly. But that, but that can never happen with. It, everyone just sort of like uh, trust the the you know the, in Canada it's Health Canada or, or the CDC in in the states right like you just uh, yes sir yes ma'am and whatever you say is is correct you know and and the scary part is they're so um, especially with healthcare man I mean these 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 governments are so inefficient you know it's like Hayek said they have the pretense of knowledge. How do yeah. they know what's best for your health? How do they know what's right. best for my health? Yeah. Only you only you know that because you're yeah. you. You yeah. know, like no one else, some politician who lives a thousand miles from you can't tell you. There's no possible way for them to know what's best for you. Yeah. Or like Mises said, they can't calculate economically. There's no way for them to know what you would do with, you know, from an economic perspective. There's no way for them to know what uh, what action you would take. You know, it's right. just guesswork, in other words. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, and like, I actually want to pick your brain a little bit too. Um, so my wife is a, she's a nurse. And uh, she we, last year we went and worked a stint in Houston. Um, and she worked at a hospital down there. And uh, it was it was interesting going from like a, uh, a universal healthcare system to a private healthcare system. Um, but, uh, it, it was, uh, the, the whole thing about calling the U S system private is like, seems to me to be a, a huge misnomer because, right. uh, the, the particular hospital she maybe there's other hospitals that are different. I don't know, but the particular hospital she was working at, it was like, they were 75% funded, uh, from Medicare and Medicaid. So they were basically funded by the government anyway, and and they were heavily heavily regulated by the government. So so basically, it they they had uh, someone had died because of um, a fit, some kind of failed blood transfusion. So the whole hospital was like super strict about every little rule, right? For when when she started working there, and um, it it was like there was like all these uh, state agents there all the time. Uh, inspecting, making sure they because if they didn't, they that hospital could no longer receive the funding, right? So, so people like say, "Oh, you want to like turn into the the U.S.?" and I'm like, "Well, the U.S. doesn't really have a, a private healthcare system the way you think it does." You know, you're 100 percent right. Yeah. You you know, 
it's almost like the option is you have the socialist model or you have the fascist model. And right, Americans yeah. have chosen the fascist model. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the only difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, it all involves increased governmental control. Right. And frankly, it gives the, it gives the free market a bad name. Yeah, yeah. Because they point to us, they say, look how expensive healthcare is. And it's like, yeah, because the government is forcing us to buy these awful policies that no one wants. Yeah. You know, I'm... I have never complied with the law because it's just egregious to me. Yeah. But um, I remember the first year I like, I looked up on like healthcare dog, whatever it was, the Obamacare thing. They wanted like 370 something dollars from me. And I was like in my twenties and I'm like, yeah, why would I pay this kind of money? Yeah. You know, And then it's, it's all to subsidize the elderly people who, you know, can't yeah. pay. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't make sense to me. And I've, you know, if I, for my one physical year, my doctor charges me $85, I give him cash and I save all of that money throughout the rest right. of the year, you know? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. If, if they're not forcing you, then they're, you know, subsidizing or they're mandating doctors require this insurance or something like that. So it, do you, it, it's out of control. Do you know of any, is there any way to engage in healthcare nonviolently and what I mean by that is like without the intervention of somebody with guns, like where you can just make a transaction between you and the medical professional. Is there any way to do that in the US or is it just all, all heavily regulated and you have to have insurance or whatever? Um, you, you're supposed to have insurance, but um, like I said, I've never had, um, I haven't had health insurance from, since they passed the Obamacare law. Okay. And I, I, I pay cash for everything. Yeah. So, like I said, I'm I'm young. Thank God, I'm healthy, and I, yeah. I don't have to spend a lot of money on healthcare. So, you know, my one visit a year runs me like less than a hundred dollars. And if I'm sick, then I say to myself, "All right, well, you got to pay two hundred dollars for a prescription." But yeah, oh that's, yeah, that's still a good deal. You're way ahead of yeah, you're way <laughs> right. ahead of the game. Yeah, and you know, the other thing too is in the socialized systems, you might as well get sick because you're paying for it anyway. Yeah. So what's the difference? You, you know, yeah. you might as well go to the doctor every day because you're going to pay for it one way or another. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it, it is. Um, uh, people kind of misunderstand the Canadian healthcare system, I think, a lot, especially uh, sort of progressives in the U.S., uh, anytime I hear them talking about Canadian healthcare, I just kind of roll my eyes a little bit because it's not the, it's not the system that they think it is. And I mean, a great example is they, they've shut down services in Canada significantly because of the pandemic unnecessarily, by the way, but (laughs) significantly. So, so there was already massive uh, shortages in, in supplies, in, in staffing, uh, necessary to care for everyone's health needs. If you need a hip or knee procedure, two years, like minimum, you're waiting, right, to to get a procedure done. And then in that time, your uh, your injury becomes worse because you're you're right. aggravating it, right? And then and then by the time you actually <laughs> get to the front of the line, then uh, things are really bad for you. Uh, but there was there was a recent report in Ontario. Uh, where and uh, every the healthcare system is managed provincially. It's not a federally managed. The federal government just uh, divvies out the dollars, and then the provinces manage the the healthcare system. But the Ontario healthcare system, there was just a report of um, as many as thirty deaths due to uh, uh, cardio uh, cardiovascular um, conditions from people who didn't uh, who were had to forego their procedure that they were waiting for because it was deemed non-essential. <laughs> yeah, can you know? now imagine, imagine a politician telling you that your heart isn't essential. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I mean, like, it, it, it's absurd to me that um, these people have blood on their hands. And yeah. They're, they're allowed to continue walking around among us. Um, uh, it makes me sick to my stomach to hear that. 30 people dead. You know, in New York here... We're we're in the thousands, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I, I've begun calling Cuomo the butcher of Bronx County because I, Bronx has got hit so hard by all of this, and it's just you see it all over the world: New Jersey, California, everywhere where you have these uh, these socialist responses. Um, like you said, most of these areas have already had some semblance of socialized healthcare previously, and they were already 
under stress from the shortages that are necessary byproducts of that socialization. Yeah. So now that this, this pandemic combined with the public response to the pandemic has sort of um, thrown a match into the tinderbox, so to speak. You know what I mean? And now we can see just how awful uh, this has been. But this is to be expected. Like, this is what happens when you allow the state to manage um, something as an economic sector as vital as healthcare. Right. Yeah. You know, like who would put such incompetent people who, I mean, who would want a politician in charge of your child's health? That's insane. Yeah, That's yeah insane. it is. It is insane. And you know, just, you know, a quick glance at a history book yeah. and I don't care what country anybody's from. You could be from Ethiopia and you could look up what that government's done. I bet you they have, they have done something malicious with the healthcare of whoever they thought was their enemy at some point in time. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pretty egregious. Um, you know, in they, America, we have or we had, thank God. Um, the, it's called the we call it the the Tuskegee experiments, where the state went into the deep rural South. This is back in like the fifties or sixties, I believe, and they uh, promised the freed blacks, "We're going to give you guys free health care." But what they really did was they were injecting them with syphilis intentionally. Yes, yeah, I've heard of this. So I mean, who 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 in their right minds right. wants to wants these that same entity to be injecting us? Well, in, well, in Canada too. Uh, I I I believe around the same time period in the fifties or something, uh, there were there were hospitals that were um, they they were uh, uh, I don't know what the word for it. They they were making they were chemically making. Uh, indigenous women infertile because they were having, they would have like a lot of kids, right? And it would be like a strain on the healthcare system. But the, the state would do the, this kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, and that, that's, you know, that's the other thing too, is that as, so like we, we give them the power to manage the healthcare system. Yeah. So that when something like, some, when, it, when something goes wrong, uh, they have to cover up for themselves to maintain that monopoly. Yeah. So it's like, oh man, the healthcare system is getting stressed. We have to start murdering or sterilizing women now because right. we can't we can't bear that burden anymore. Well, guess what? A free market, a privatized market, could handle that stress, no problem. Yeah. yeah no yeah. problem. Exactly. There's doctors who would love to do. I'm sure in Canada right now, there's some orthopedic surgeon who's sitting at home watching TV when he could be doing that poor woman's hip surgery, right. but he yeah. can't. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh, it's at. It, it's terrible and i don't even know how we're ever going to crawl out of it because it's it's uh it's just pushed everything way back and i don't know how the system's going to handle and canada spends uh 60% of our federal budget is healthcare <laughs> you know which is amazing <laughs> and and like you said it's all provincially managed yeah yeah <laughs> exactly yeah it's uh it's it's pretty wild but um yeah uh so um, just before we wrap up here, uh, do you want to like uh, plug any of your stuff where we can find you? Yeah, of course. Um, so I have southigors.com and really that's where you can find everything. I've got, um, I've got a blog, newlibertarian.io, which I also publish at southigors.com. But there you can find, I've got uh, my podcast is up the Agora. You can find links for the blog, the show notes. And I also have, uh, I sell like uh Liberty, I put memes and stuff on t-shirts and that's all at salvywars.com. Uh, so check that out. Yeah. And follow Sal on Twitter. He's a pretty good Twitter follow. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah. At yeah. Sally Mayweather. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming. You got it. Thanks for having me. Let's do it again. Yeah. Peace, bro.